We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode. Hello to everyone listening to the That Planet Mask podcast. I am Grayson Mask. I have with me Nathan Whitehouse of Drifter Spirits and really wanted to have this conversation because really I just keep on wanting to see how different wine and spirits um, companies within the industry are adapting to this pandemic and really just because this pandemic has had such a huge change on primarily on-premise locations and restaurants and bars. And I can imagine that this might present uh, new issues for wine and spirits companies on how they have to not just market their products, but how they have to negotiate with different locations, how they have to focus on logistical issues and, you know, a lot of things like that. So thank you again, Nate, for jumping on this podcast with me and having this conversation. Thanks, Grayson. It's my, my pleasure to be here. Definitely. Well, uh, really, I wanted to really dive into kind of the conversation on when I saw the kind of the about page on Drifter Spirits, I saw that really, uh, really the kind of the idea of Drifter Spirits came in a 2012 encounter with Sasha Petrosky. And I guess before, you know, we kind of get into that counter, can you explain who Sasha Petrosky is to people that, you know, aren't aware of the wine and spirits industry or, you know, their um, um, encounters and their uh, changes on the wine and spirits industry? Yeah, I mean, I think if anyone is into wine and spirits, he probably had a craft cocktail. Maybe that's an old fashioned, maybe that's a Moscow mule, a Negroni, French 75. And that really, you know, your experience there really descends in many ways from a, a group of four different, um, you know, four different restaurateurs or bar owners um, that were largely centered around New York. Um, but one of the most interesting ones was a, a gentleman by the name of Sash Petrosky, who helped found Milk and Honey. In New York and London, um, he was an incredibly influential person in training a lot of people in in the kind of the craft cocktail revival. Um, he was a very fascinating, fascinating human being who um, was an artist of, of cocktails. We really spent a lot of time delving into this kind of old American, you know, one of the the only unique, uniquely American food traditions that. Um, that has gone global and, um, you know, and died out during prohibition and really got revived in kind of the mid to late 1990s, um, in, in some kind of downtown New York bars. And so Sasha started milk and honey in 1999, a little coffee shop and just trained everybody, you know, <laughs> um, whether that's, you know, uh, the Esquire in San Antonio or a lot of people from, 
Los Angeles or Miami or, or you know, the Violet Hour in Chicago, all, all those kind of very influential bars around the country descend in some ways from from Sasha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where uh, I didn't know that. I guess craft cocktails were up during prohibition and kind of died out for a while. Was it just because like prohibition, they were like, we need something to mix this gin with people don't want to drink it straight up or how is that like? It's actually much older than that. So basically, you know how people used to, in most cultures in the world, historically you, you drink things neat, right? You drink wine, you drink a neat spirit, but in English culture, they would mix things in punches in the 1700s. And when, you know, the English cultures, you know, started to become uniquely American, um, we started to miniaturize cocktails or miniaturize punches in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And that became this massive tradition of the cocktail, right? It's, and this was a huge part of American culture all throughout the 1800s up until the early 1900s. And, um, you know, all the, you know, the, the old fashions, the French 75s, the daisies, you know, um, the flips, the sours, all these interesting flavor combinations where you come by mixing different things and diluting them with ice. Um, that, that comes really originally from America and then spread out to the rest of the world through hotels. But mm-hmm. it ended up dying um, because of prohibition. And after that, we sort of entered into this non-cocktail age or non-classic cocktail age, which was a bit of a desert of like quality <laughs> in, in many ways until until a few kind of just nerdy food and beverage people um, started to find all these old books um, and they started to try and recreate this, these traditions. And one of them, you know, they're, you know, Del DeGroff, you know, uh, um, Audrey Sanders, um, Julie Reiner, you know, Sasha Petrosky, there's, there's a number of them, but, but Sasha was one of the most, most influential ones because he really took it extremely seriously <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and got really good at it and, and trained a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, um, so with that encounter, what led you to, um, I guess what brought you out to New York and, you know, what was that encounter like? Because I can imagine, you know, being in the craft cocktail world and just meeting an idol. Um, I can imagine, you know, having that type of relationship or even just that meeting, it would be huge on kind of your passion. Yeah, I mean, it kind of came about because me and and my business partner on, on Drifter, uh, Pete, we had really gotten super curious and super passionate about this unique Brazilian spirit called cachaça, which is a, a sugarcane juice distillate. It's a native spirit of Brazil. It's one of the oldest spirits in the new world, but isn't really well known in the U S. So, um, I got into that through just a love of Brazilian music and started to travel to Brazil and realized there are all these amazing cachaças in, in, in that part of the world. And we started to tinker about with the idea of like branding one of them and bringing it to the U S to try and explain that, that culture. And so we spent a few years really designing the Avoa brand, uh, with a partner in Brazil, uh, a really cool Brazilian woman that has been distilling cachaça in her family for many generations. And, um, 
but we started to think about, okay, well, how do we start to introduce these to all these cool bars that are looking for something different? And, you know, it was, it was 2012, it was in the fall and, um, we were in the West village of New York and we're sitting down in this coffee shop interviewing somebody and, and we see this guy kind of walk up. It's like 10 in the morning. We got these couple of cool mock bottles sitting on the table and he looks over at these bottles and starts standing just a little bit too close in some ways. And, you know, and so he sort of looked up and said, Hey man, can I, can I help you? And he was sort of a, a curious character, right? He had a Huayabara, one of those, you know, uh, sort of Dominican or, or Mexican, like frilly short sleeve button down shirts, <laughs> blacks and, and bowling shoes. And, um, as an Anglo gentleman, but he looked over and, and he's like, are you guys launching a cachaça? And we were like, yeah. Like, what do you know about cachaça? Cause it's kind of like a category that not many people knew about. And he was like, he's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the bar world. Um, I own a couple bars in downtown New York. I'd love to, to try it. And so we were like, okay. And so, you know, you know, it's 10, 15 in the morning. So we poured him a couple shots of the Agua Prata, which is the NH Chassa, and the Umbarana, which is aged in this weird Brazilian wood. And he tried it and he, he looked at us and he said, you know what, guys, that's the best damn Chassa I've ever had in my life. Um, I would when you guys start coming to market, I would love to put that on the shelf of these bars and didn't know who he was. Like they had never met him before. And he said, ask him to write down his email. He writes on his email. It's like S Sasha P Petrosky at gmail.com. And, uh, it was, it's, it's funny. Cause later on I learned that, um, Sasha was very, he was like very well known, but he's very publicity shy. So he would change his email once every three months or six months and change his phone number. Cause he didn't like, there are a lot of people who like were trying to get in catch from all the time. He, he would always change it. And so he had all these like weird variations on S Petrosky at Gmail. And, uh, and anyways, so, you know, over, you know, he became a friend and, um, yeah, actually ended up, uh, helping him, him move right before he passed away actually. But he just had a really amazing palette a really amazing kind of rigor and how he thinks about things. And like just a true artist in, in the sense that he didn't really care about the money. He didn't care about, you know, a success. I mean, he cared about success in some ways, but he really just cared about giving people an amazing experience in, in hospitality with drinks. And so he was moving one of his bars up to a different location. He's like, Oh, you want to, you want to, you want to do a launch with us? And so we did, and everyone came to see the new bar. They didn't care about Avocados at the time, but uh, all the kind of craft cocktail people in, you know, from Boston down to DC, really, or many of them, came up to to see uh, to see the new Melkanadi, and they got into Stavla, and then it started to spread out from there. And that's that's how I uh, <laughs> fell into the into the widely uh, into the. <laughs> You know, that's how it spiraled out of control. And I uh, <laughs> became a food. <laughs> As well. No, it's, uh, yeah, really when I saw your website with the Avoir, um, really I saw one of the, one of you guys' blog articles on kind of with cane juice where you talked about, you know, you think about the Caribbeans when you think of kind of these cane juices, but no one really thinks of uh, specifically Brazil when, you know, it, does provide more than uh, all these other countries combined. Is there any like 
Are there any other countries out there that you think maybe just don't get the recognition it deserves or maybe they're, you know, um, under the radar when it comes to actual cocktail production or what they contribute? As far as like cool spirits, I mean, there's a lot of amazing spirits out there. I mean, one I love is is Aquavit, which is a Scandinavian spirit. It's sort of like um, <clears throat> a predecessor of gin, but with um, caraway instead of juniper. Uh, we, we ended up launching one this past year called Swole. Um, you know, I think there's just an incredibly rich tradition of Asian distillation, um, which we don't necessarily know a lot about here. Um, you know, I mean, one that's just pretty well known and or relatively well known in the, in the bar industry world would be like Batavia Rock, right? Um, which is uh, an Indonesian spirit, I think. Um, but, you know, there's just a ton of really cool distillation traditions around the world, whether that be from Brazil or would that be, I mean, Mexico is obviously one that has an amazing, amazing rich tradition of, you know, different agave varietals far beyond tequila, mezcal, sotols, bacanoras, you know, um, even rums um, or, or sugarcane distillations called chirandas. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, there's just a ton out there. <laughs> and that's what I think is really exciting about the the kind of people's interest in these more unusual spirits because you can start to really like experience the 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 soul of a country a little bit and and what people's you know uh, flavor combinations that they find interesting in their culture um maybe five thousand miles away (laughs) is that where i guess the kind of the drifter name came from because i can imagine like where you know you go to all these countries and you find underrepresented or underappreciated um spirits of these different countries yeah that's exactly it i mean it it was really inspired by two different things one of which is you know uh pete and myself while we were building the avoir brand and the distribution network um we're traveling a crazy amount i mean i was traveling 300 days out of the year i didn't have an apartment for a couple years just because i was traveling that much um and uh and so, you know, that sort of like was, you know, we kind of felt like drifters in a certain sense. Um, but I think the other part of it is the idea of like going to all these places, you know, Rio, Berlin, you know, um, Puglia in Southern Italy, you know, um, Morocco and, and finding all these different traditions. We were like, this is a good way of explaining what we find cool about like this particular thing we're trying to bring back to the U S market. Yeah. Was there, uh, you know, is there a specific city that you have in mind? Um, really when you did all these travels that I guess gave you, you know, a really warm welcome or, you know, really enjoyed the, uh, the products that you brought. I mean, my favorites are all, I mean, God, I've been so many awesome places, but, uh, through this, but you know, I love, I love, um, I love Sao Paulo as a city. It's it's such, you know, actually, like Sao Paulo is just it's it's this huge, you know, bigger than much bigger than New York actually, um, super diverse. It's got a ton of people from Japan, from Korea, 
from Italy, from, you know, indigenous peoples of Brazil, African people of African influence, and, and all these traditions kind of mash up in this really cool, like, punk rock metropolis, <laughs> kind of. Um, and so I've, I've always had, like, really warm welcomes there. Um, I love Buenos Aires when I was there. Um, the guys at Floreria Atlantico um, gave me an incredible welcome. Um, Southern Italy has always been a super amazing place. Um, Bari, uh, Bicheglier and the, and the boot of Italy, um, were always amazing. Um, and then for my, for my money, like for global cities, London is, is, you know, it's like the old, the old quote. And if you get tired of London, you get tired of life. <laughs> London is <laughs> an incredible, incredible, uh, place with, you know, sort of like New York, but different. <laughs> mm. No, definitely the, yeah, I remember kind of going out to London. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, yeah, I love the, really just the whole kind of the pubs out there. It's kind of, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of places here, it's kind of hard to beat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just so like, there's so many people from all over the world. You'll, you'll be talking to somebody and like, uh, you know, I have a friend there who's from Monterey in Mexico or from, you know, uh, Hong Kong or from, you know, Xinjiang in Northern China, right? Like, or (laughs) India, of course, a lot of people from, of Indian descent there and a a lot of people from the States, you know, as well. So it's, it's just kind of like a really cool mashup of, of, um, of cultures and it, it holds the best of them in many ways. Yeah. No, I think, uh, yeah, uh, really when I went out there, it's kind of just, yeah, you get that mashup of cultures considering that they have the that that they have the cross country trains so easily where it's like, <laughs> wow, you can just jump on a train and just go across the continent. That's that's bizarre to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, pretty wild. I mean, just a couple hours from Paris on the on the on the Eurostar. But yeah, I mean, but I think too like with London, it's like you you have like, you know, things like you know, borough market where you can get just like all these little stands where you can get all the, all different types of food or, you know, like, you know, I just remember walking up to one and the, the guy was like, Oh, you want some sea urchin out of the shell? And I was like, sure. Like cracked up the sea urchin. You eat some uni just like that. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty uh-huh. Definitely. Well, I kind of wanted to um, really dive into this pandemic and kind of some of the, uh, changes that happen within your company kind of adapting to this ha- has there been I-, I guess with uh with your line of products is it do you primarily deal with on-premise or off-premise customers or how's that split up yeah historically we've we've dealt mostly with on-premise i mean a lot of what we did was to excite and you know the craft bartender about different spirits they didn't know about mm-hmm. so you know on on March, you know, 12th, when the first orders started coming down, um, we were like, Ooh, this is going to be that great for, you know, all our friends and colleagues in the industry and, and for us also. So, um, you know, I think there was a, a moment where we were really panicking about, well, are we going to, was all this hard work going to disappear for us? We're going to go out of business. And, um, mm-hmm. and then beyond that, like, what's this going to do to all the people? I mean, I really love like the on-premise channel. I love, I love bartenders. I love chefs. I love, I love restaurateurs. Like it's, it's just a really warm group of people who center their community in many ways. And, um, 
and just realizing the incredibly harsh impact this would have on, on those people. Um, so, you know, we sort of panicked for a little bit and then we, uh, <laughs> we pretty quickly like tried to, you know, COVID proof our business. And, um, we had to end up, you know, furloughing, uh, the majority of our staff, um, you know, at least temporarily, we, we cut our salaries. We basically got rid of any costs we could. And, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of government support, um, but, uh, you know, there was a little, and, and that did certainly help us keep us in business, but yeah, we just kind of like shut it down and waited for things to come back to life. And, um, you know, we've kind of like, you know, in, in some sense it's been, it's been a real challenge, but in the other sense, it's been, you know, an interesting opportunity because it's caused us to realize that we needed to um, balance our business with a lot more uh, retail. So we've been working mm-hmm. on there's some projects, some brands we had been launching that were really go- always going to be more retail friendly. Um, there's a brand called Paladar, which is a tequila. It's kind of like a, a compass box of tequila in some ways. It's a partnership with the uh, the fifth generation of the Orendane family. Um, so they're one of the five original tequila families, um, you know, a- alongside the Sousas and Cuervo, et cetera, et cetera. The, but they're the only one that's independent. And so the uh, the great-great-grandson is a, a good friend of mine. And so we partnered on a brand called Paladar, which is basically trying to push the boundaries of tequila with some really cool, like, uh, limited editions, which frankly can't even be called. Like, it'll have, like, a Blanco, Repo, Añejo, but... Um, which will be really high quality produced by this very old producer, but we'll also be doing things like bacterial fermentation in, you know, for a tequila or aging in, you know, unusual types of woods like Umbarana. So that, that's one thing, you know, we really started to work on much more quickly um, to try and get it to market. And then we all started to work on a, on a canned cocktail concept, which is called Drifter Craft Cocktails, um, which we're pretty excited about launch, launching here in the next month. Oh, okay. And, and so what is uh drifter craft cocktails? Yeah. So, so basically, you know, we'd always, we'd de- we developed the drifter brand to help explain why we would be talking about all these different things from around the world. Right. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it's kind of like this elegant take on a, on a drifter. Right. And, um, the brand was always really cool and people loved it. And then we realized that people in a time when they can't travel like they wanted to, or, or, or they can't experience the rest of the world, you know, let's bring the world to them. And so the idea is that every can is a stamp in your passport and their twists on classic cocktails, but really high quality inspired and created by some of the best bartenders in the world. So say for example, we have, you know, a variation on a margarita, a spicy margarita with a bit of tepache thing. So it's like pineapple and chipotle um, that was created by a bartender called Nico De Soto, who's very, um, you know, uh, owns Mace in New York and also owns Danico in Paris. And it's just a really uh, <clears throat> big figure in the craft cocktail bartending scene or, uh, but that's made with Paladar or tequila. And, uh, or we have a passion fruit caipirinha made with Avoa, but created by, um, a really well known bartender at the Cosmo in, in Vegas called Mariana Mercer. So she's, she kind of was inspired by her readings about Brazil and her travels to 
do a variation on a passion fruit caipirinha or um or we're doing like a like a slightly spicier version of the moscow mule with michael neff from the cottonmouth club in houston um kind of a bar you know uh like a bar uh um like elder statesman as it were <laughs> so but they're really cool i mean they're they're very high quality um you know it's not ever going to be quite as you know it's 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 as good as a thing as you're going to get without going to a bar. Mm-hmm. And um, they're all, you know, kind of dentist recommended by these amazing bartenders who've been doing this forever and, and really know how to, how to create cool stuff. Definitely. So you talked about like, um, so you kind of mentioned, you know, without going to a bar and really the importance of trying to make your products more retail friendly. Has there, is there a reason that you've always, that you've been more on-premise focused? Um, Cause I can imagine maybe the marketing's a little bit different, kind of preparing a cocktail in front of people and showing the bartender versus, you know, putting on a retail space. Has there, I guess, been a learning curve with that? Yeah, it's, it's definitely been interesting. I mean, <clears throat> the way that you market those two channels is pretty different, mm-hmm. you know, but in general, you know, when you're talking about these niche categories that we've traditionally worked in, you know, uh, cachaça, aquavit, you know, unusual Italian bitters from Northern Italy, right? <laughs> like that kind of stuff is not something that the average consumer is like, you know what? I need like a, I need like a very, I need like a bitter bergamot forward version of, you know, like for home, like mm-hmm. they may love it if they're at, you know, the, the usual in Fort Worth or nickel city or, or jettison or, or some of the great, you know, bars around, around the DFW area, but they're not going to know what to do with it. So what we do is we help excite and educate the bartender so, so that they can then educate the consumer. It's kind of like dentist recommended, right? Um, but that's something, you know, it, it's a little bit harder to ask somebody who, who doesn't know what Aquavit is to try it when they're at Specs. <laughs> um, even though they may love it, they may think it's the most amazing, interesting flavor they've ever had. Mm-hmm. No, that's, uh, I mean, that's been kind of like some of the conversations I've had with this podcast that it, it seems really this pandemic that it's definitely posing a challenge on, you know, with social distancing and people wearing masks, you know, they're not in the aisle asking around like, oh, what's some new products here you know, they kind of want to grab, I guess, a name brand or a brand, a loyalty brand that they have and then just get out of the store. Um, so I can imagine, yeah, this pandemic has possibly increased that or posed kind of a risk. Yeah, I think it's like people, it's kind of when they're stressed, they gravitate towards their what they're comfortable with, right? And, you know, while I think that many people or maybe most people are curious about different things out there in the world, um, if, if you explain it to them in, in, in a way that they'll be open to it, um, you know, there's a mental state you're in when you're not, when you're like, I just want what I know. Like, I, I just need to, <laughs> I just need to feel, feel okay and, and, and hope that the world is going in the right direction again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah really a, a kind of another thing i want to ask on um with this pandemic i saw uh really kind of right before we started recording i saw on your linkedin profile with the thirst organization and i saw um 
you know, you helped kind of found and uh, create that. And, you know, I was kind of wondering on what the national organization is for that. And, you know, if you want to explain what that organization does. Yeah, I mean, I think that was really sparked out of, you know, just the incredible shock of seeing from one day to the next every single person who we dealt that with basically being shut down and also the incredible shock of realizing that there wasn't a lot of support to help. I mean, these people's lives were basically taken away from them and their livelihoods were taken away from them. And and there wasn't a lot of support from our government governments, plural to help people in that situation. And it, you know, aside from being, uh, I would say angry, you know, um, and um, disappointed in the reaction of the, of the government. Um, we, uh, we decided, we started, you know, I started to talk about different ways where we could maybe help and um, started to talk to some people who were really connected around the country um, in the hospitality world. And I think we all realized that one of the reasons this happened was because even though independent hospitality has grown by leaps and bounds over the past 20 years everywhere in the United States, um, we didn't really have a seat at the table with our policymakers. So um, I happen to be a lawyer by trade. That's my original training. Um, So we tried to, so really what thirst is there to do is to help empower hospitality people to develop relationships with policymakers, make sure they have their ear, make sure that they understand what we need as a community to be, um, to have our businesses and our, our communities thrive. And what that really looks like is we, you know, we're developing, um, alongside some other people, a think tank for different policy initiatives, um, that might be helpful, you know, in general or for, for the hospitality community, um, the other part of it is essentially a, a lobbying organization that is most like 98% volunteer. We do have one person on staff, but basically they, um, they help, you know, educate bar and hospitality people about how to get in front of state, you know, representatives and senators um, it, to get in front of federal representatives and senators and like explain to them what needs to happen. And then the third is a political action committee which is there to like help get bar and hospitality people to run for office, um, which is something we saw, you know, uh, some of this past year. And it's, it's, it's nonpartisan. I mean, we're, you know, our, our interest is not necessarily supporting one system over the other. It's, it's, it's to say like, you know, I don't give a shit really as long as like you make sure that my community is good. Right? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, at least in that, in that sense. So that's that's kind of what we're doing. Um, we've 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 pushed forward. Um, uh, we got we our our main point is you know insurance didn't cover anything for bars and restaurants around the country. They just sort of walked away from the responsibility. So we've tried to or we've we've gotten um, probably uh, well two bills with one extra one coming very soon in uh in massachusetts and pennsylvania and also washington dc i think and we've been supporting bills in uh, new york and in washington and trying to get bills introduced in texas and indiana Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's um, I didn't know about the part on helping people in the hospitality industry get elected into, I guess, office and into political positions. Is that has there been any, um, I guess, recent news on someone in the hospitality industry getting into some type of elected position? Yeah, there, there's there's actually in, in on the local level, that's been kind of a little trend, um, you know, as part of our organization, we have a guy called Zach Hockman that got um, a position, got elected to a, essentially an alderman position in Washington, D.C. Um, also a gentleman by the name of Je- Jabriel Donahue with the, the same in Seattle. Um, one uh, <clears throat> member who's been, you know, pretty supportive of us is a, a guy called Malcolm Kenyatta, who's a, a state representative in Pennsylvania. He's actually running for federal Senate who used to be a server, right? I mean, he was like, uh, that's how he, you know, worked his way up. Um, that's how he worked his way through college. And, you know, he's a, just this really cool, cool dude. I mean, he's like, I think the first out gay dude in in the Pennsylvania legislature. He's African-American and he's just like really passionate about his community, but also understands like the, understands, um, you know, the issues that hospitality faces because that was his life for many years. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, so really what we're trying to do with that is identify five candidates around the country, um, in 2022 who are ex hospitality, you know, party agnostic, um, you know, in local, in local elections and really help support them in developing platforms, getting connected to, you know, the structures they need to, and, and, uh, hopefully, you know, providing some, some funding for them as well, where that's legal and appropriate. Definitely. No, like I'm, yeah, I'm very intrigued on where I guess the hospitality industry on what will be the final, what will everything look like after this pandemic, as far as the entire landscape. I've had um, really uh, kind of blog interviews with uh, restaurant owners, chefs, um, kind of in conversations about that. And really is based on kind of a news article that I saw with, uh, I think, David Chang um, with his restaurants where he talked about, you know, after this, I'm going to make sure my restaurants, 50% of the revenue come from outside of people actually eating in my restaurant. So I guess like sauce sales um, to go orders. And, and but another big part of it was him talking about, you know, also at the same time, uh, the consumer has to be willing to kind of spend more for high quality food. Um, you know, he kind of says a lot of people out there kind of want to, you know, pay very little money for, um, you know, very tasty food, which is very difficult. You know, someone has to pay on the supply line if you're getting that. Um, you know, I kind of, I, I talked to some people and they said uh, kind of whether they agree or disagree with those comments. I don't know. Ha- has there been, I, I guess, what has your outlook been with, you know, you talked about all these connections you've had uh, you know, and how much you care about kind of just all these bartenders, bussers, uh, hosts, um, you know, what have you been saying? Yeah. I mean, this is a point that someone, we, there's a, a clubhouse that, uh, different people associate with a group have every, every Friday at 1130, where we talk about different policy challenges that, um, that bars and restaurants face. And, and, and someone made the point yesterday that, we have to acknowledge that the hospitality is the insure has, has in many sense been the employer of last resort for a lot of people. 
right? Mm-hmm. It is a place where you can truly work yourself up from your by your bootstraps. You know, all that really matters, you know, to some degree is that you are, you know, you work hard and you like people, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's true for, you know, a variety of different people. That might be true for somebody who just got back from Afghanistan that might be, you know, from a veteran that might be true for, you know, someone that doesn't have other opportunities because they, you know, didn't have the economic ability to do that. It might, you know, it might, it's, it doesn't matter. Right. And that's kind of what I love about it. Mm -hmm. But part of that is that the economics of running a restaurant are incredibly difficult. It is a, low margin business. And part of that is really the fact that, you know, you're kind of squeezed on all angles <laughs> on the business side. Um, and, you know, that's something I think is really important to take into account if we want independent hospitality c- to continue. I mean, I remember what it was like to grow up in an area where there was essentially no independent hospitality. It was all chain restaurants. And I didn't like it. Right. I liked the idea that go to to a restaurant that has a connection to its community that I know the owner that I that I know that they care right and that I think is something you know I'm personally willing to pay a little more for that but I think that you know we have to somehow as a society recognize that restaurants are like a really important part of the safety net um, at least as it's currently constructed and we also need to make sure that 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 um, that safety net's available for people. You know, if, if you're a, a hard worker and you have a great idea, you should be able to start your own restaurant as long as you make your customers happy, right? Like that's that's the American dream in 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 that sense, and and that has and we need independent hospitality to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. That's your question. <laughs> I kind of went yeah. off. No, no, I definitely um, kind of like your point on, yeah, a restaurant being squeezed from all sides. Um, that's kind of, yeah, that's always kind of been my, I always thought that restaurants are almost similar to banks on just like the amount of trickle. It's kind of the amount of businesses, whether it's food vendors, uh, ride sharing services, reservation systems that, you know, rely specifically on that source of revenue. Um, so I don't, yeah, if it, and if a restaurant falls, then yeah, definitely takes a lot of businesses and staff down with it. Um, so I don't know, it's, you know, I'm, I'm hoping, yeah, that there is not just, I guess, government assistance, but some type of cultural changes and people kind of understand that. Um, yeah, with, uh, you know, and possibly are willing to spend the money if it protects a, you know, non-franchise restaurant. Yeah. And and it's also, I mean, I would, I would argue too, that like, that's a place where real communities are built, right? Like, like Michael Neff, who, who did one of these craft cocktails, these canned cocktails for us is, um, he's, you know, he's been in the industry for 30 plus years, like, He's a playwright um, is, is, is one of his things, but he gives these lectures about what it means to be a bartender or, or a hospitality person for, um, for young bartenders, which is part of an educational series we do called Tiki by the Sea. 
And he, he, he said something that really stuck out, stood out to me. He's like, in my 30 years in bartending, I can't count the number of business deals that have come because I introduced two people at a bar. I can't count the number of, you know, friendships of, you know, rich human interactions. I can't count the number of babies <laughs> and relationships <laughs> that I, that I made, like making sure that he's like seeing these two people who are too shy to talk to one another be like, Hey, you know, like you guys both seem cool. Like, and, and that, and, and there's, it's like, there's a, um, there's a net benefit to independent hospitality because that's really where, you know, people learn to connect with other people in a light fashion. Right. And it's also where they, they make these interactions that, that make our society a richer place and, 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 uh, and, you know, fundamentally make us a democracy as opposed to something else. Right. Cause you got to know people, right. And it's not, it's not just who you went to school with, but it's like, you know, who lives down the block, who's cool, you know, like who you like and you get along with and you guys both want to make sure that the roads are paved, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Definitely. Well, yeah, that's, um, yeah, really interesting. I guess I didn't think of kind of on the restaurants like that on the importance of that the local community actually starts within the restaurant. Um, really, I wanted to ask uh, to kind of wrap this up. I really wanted to ask on, you know, we talked about the pandemic, but wanted to see, you know, what the future goals that you have possibly pushing uh, after this pandemic, whether it's, you know, new customers, new brand partnerships, uh, new programs. Um, you know, I know we talked about the draft cocktails, but, um, you know, if there's anything else. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're really kind of trying to build a book of really cool stuff that, you know, people love and it's very high quality. So we're, we're in the process of, of getting ready to, to expand that book pretty, pretty dramatically. I mean, you know, aside from our core brands, which are Avo Cachaca, Swol Aquavit, um, Gajardo Bitter Radicale, uh, which is this bitter from North, Northern Italy, we're, um, uh, <clears throat> and also launching the Drifter Craft Cocktails, the Paladar Tequila, but we'll be launching some other kind of great high quality stuff, which we, we hope people will try um, and, and, and hopefully they enjoy it. Um, but then also, you know, really just kind of getting, um, you know, our goals are to, as the world starts to, you know, get back to some semblance of normalcy here, like really bring people some cool, awesome stuff that they like and they want to, you know, drink. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to, um, I definitely need to go out to kind of a retail space and actually pick up, um, you know, Drifter Spirit or just, uh, yeah, once uh, you guys have either some events or something like that, definitely have to check out a bar and, you know, bring up one of these uh, cocktails. I'm definitely looking forward to the um, kind of the book you guys are putting together on just kind of all the worldly kind of cocktail mixes um definitely want to try out a few of those but yeah definitely thank you again nate for coming on this podcast with me and explaining uh really i was just very interested in kind of your background and kind of all these kind of travel stories you had and you know some of these people that you met but and just uh you know really the conversation on how this has been kind of changing kind of the hospitality environment and kind of what you look forward to 
after this pandemic. Um, definitely really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, Grayson, real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And um, yeah, I hope, uh, hope the rest of your, your Saturday is awesome. Definitely. Thank you. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask Podcast. Stay connected with us directly through the PlatinumMask.com. You can also join the discussion on Instagram at GrayMask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.